This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. For people that know me well, are very familiar with, about five years ago, um, I went through something very, very unusual in my life. And y'all have heard little bits and pieces about it in the show. Uh, five years ago, on the 23rd of September, I was taken to the doctor. My primary care physician literally screamed in her office for the for an ambulance. I was rushed to the emergency room because she thought I was having a heart attack or heart failure, one of the two. That's not what the case was. Uh, it took them hours to figure out what was wrong. And when they finally did, the doctor looked me square in the eyes and told me that I had had an aortic dissection. I had no clue in the world what that was, but it, it didn't sound good. So I said, okay, well, let me let me go home and research it because I, I, I really like to understand what's going on with my body. And he, he leaned in a little closer and he says, let me, let me be clear. He says, if you don't have surgery tonight, preferably before midnight, you're going to be dead by tomorrow morning. Now, I, I can tell you that's pretty much the most sobering thing I've ever heard in my life. And my, my dad was standing right there, and his mouth kind of dropped open. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, and I'm trying to absorb this. You know, I, obviously, I, I was going to the hospital. They were making phone calls trying to find a qualified surgeon. I'm, I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? And I, I grabbed my phone so I could send a couple of texts out real quick. Obviously, I, I they, they found a surgeon. Thank goodness. I'm very, very thankful they found the one they did. I had the surgery. I was in a coma for five days. I woke up, and life hasn't been the same. We'll just say that. But I am very thankful every single day that I'm alive. And actually, actually, a few days ago, I was in the office, and I grabbed a piece of paper, and I wrote a little note, and I sent it to, to my thoracic surgeon. And I, I told her, I said, I just wanted to send you a note and let you know I am thankful for every single day of the last five years, and I had to thank you since you're the one that gave them to me. And I think the two women that are on the line with me right now um, understand how I feel. Is that right, ladies? So true. What do you think, Betsy? Um, I would say yes. I feel <laughs> I'm very blessed. I'm ten, I'm 10 years out as of the 13th, and... I am thankful for every day. Now, the the reason I said that they, they understand is they've both gone through the same thing. Now, I've got Karen with me and Betsy with me. And they've both gone through the very same thing. Their, their stories are slightly different. But, but we've both been through this. And I I believe I have the statistics right when I say that only 3% of people that go through this actually survive. That's right, isn't it? That is correct. Yes, that is correct. That's if it's what's called a type A dissection, which is when the lining of the aorta pulls away uh, one or two of the three layers that you have uh, that is in the ascending area, meaning the aorta is shaped like a candy cane, comes out of the heart and goes up into an arch and backs behind the heart 
and straight down into the abdomen. So if it, if you have an, uh, an issue to the uh, ascending area in, that air, in, in the aorta, that's where the most volume of blood is coming out of the heart. So that's where if, some, if an event like that happens there, you're at risk for complete rupture, which would be yeah. imminent death, or uh, the statistics just, um, they go up greatly every hour that you're not receiving treatment as far as mortality rate. Right. Yeah, and and I actually waited five weeks to go to the doctor. I, they they just I every time I walk in the doctor's office, they just look at me and shake their head and give me a hug. <laughs> just, they're they're just amazing. Like, not a clue, not a clue how you're here. I I I think that every morning when I wake up, I, I that was not the time to procrastinate. It really was not. Mm-hmm. But, and and you can tell that Karen talks about this on a on a regular basis by how well she explained that. <laughs> <laughs> My background is not in healthcare. It was uh, <laughs> nothing of the sort. Actually, I think one of the reasons why discussing the medical stuff comes so easily to me is because I had Crohn's disease for 20 years prior to. Oh, okay. So getting involved in a community and finding a support group. I put my head in the sand for many, 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 many years. And then yeah. due to a back-to-back surgery, I just got to a place where I knew I had to accept that I, I had a disability and I had a problem. And I went and started attending support group meetings. And then I kind of became a little bit more open to, it's just my body. It just is what it is. I better learn a little bit more about it. So when this happened um, to me, and I'm five years as well. I had five years in January, so I'm just a few months ahead of you. Um, it just became, it just felt right to learn as much about this as I could as well. That that was what, I mean, well, I, I always want to learn more about things. And it, when it's happening to your body and it's affecting so, I mean, it affects your daily life in so many ways. And I, I started seeing, I mean, I, I call it my collateral damage because it, it, so many other things have have happened because of this, you know, and and I started going, okay, I've I've got to figure out what's going on. I've got to understand. And finding the support group on Facebook, I don't even remember why I looked it up, but thank goodness, and that that saved my sanity. It really has, because I mean, you you go in the support group, and I, I I've said on the show so many times, you know, if if you're dealing with something that's just overwhelming to you, see if you can't find a support group. Find other people that you can talk to that get what you're going through, and especially ones that that you can vent to, but bottom line, they're going to be positive in a way to help you so that you can get out what you need to, but they're going to be encouraging for you because that has been such a humongous help. That's how I met you two. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, so Aorticope... Um, which started off as just a page on Facebook, just was going to be very similar to a lot of support group pages that are on Facebook. That's mainly what the, the groups that everybody joins are. That's, that's in that uh, type of social media. <clears throat> Excuse me. We started off as just a page um, by individuals who were all touched by aortic disease. It was myself who had had a dissection, another woman who had had an aneurysm that was discovered, and then she had scheduled surgery, <clears throat> excuse me, and then another woman who is a caregiver to, to two individuals in her family who have Marfan syndrome, which is one of 
the most typical things that people see or associate to an aortic dissection because it was so well known. And the reality, and we can get back to this later, is that people with syndromes or genetic mutations only represent 5% of the population of people who have an aortic dissection. But all of this a marketing campaign has been so strong and so wonderful. And what they've realized is they've left the other 95% of us in the wind. And that's one of the reasons that the mortality rate had been so low. I mean, so high because they didn't know that we needed to be followed. They didn't know that people who had a dissection, but were not Marfans, they didn't know that we needed to have yearly scans. And now we are literally all of us on this call are considered the first generation of people that have had aortic dissections that are truly being followed. Therefore, they believe our, our longevity should be as long as it would have been before this happened. There's no reason we won't just live whatever our life was meant to be. We should mm-hmm. not necessarily pass them anything that had to do with this. But when aortic hope started, we realized right away there was something that was missing. And I think anybody who has a condition can relate to this. If you have a condition, let's say you have diabetes or you had breast cancer or you have Crohn's disease or you had an aortic dissection, when the nurses come to talk to you or the doctors, most times they don't have those same conditions. So they're talking to you from textbook experience. But if somebody walked into your room and said, hey, I had breast cancer, or hey, I had an aortic dissection, I'm standing, look, I can do a tap dance for you right here. (laughs) You wouldn't necessarily feel that your body's about to implode if you exhale too hard, or if you sneeze, or if you take two steps. You'd feel like there's somebody that's living and breathing, standing right there in front of you, that's had what's happened to you. So we knew that that whole concept was missing in the community. There are nonprofits that all, we all go towards the same destination in helping people, but we do it differently. So John Ritter Foundation, their lane is to help individuals via research for genetic mutations. And there's another organization, Aortic Warriors, and their main purpose is really focused, initially it was focused on how to reduce mortality in the inner cities, but now it's shifted more towards exercise and how people can live their full potential with aortic disease. Aortic Hope's goal became became the post-diagnosis organization. So when you find out you have aortic disease, who can you go to for information, hope, and a little bit of levity in your day and take your mind off things a little bit? So we kind of encompass all of that and we just do it differently. And we just, we felt that there was a hole and we needed to make ourselves available for people so that they don't ever need to feel that scared when they have this situation like those of the founders have as well. We've already felt that. True. Well, I just found out when in last September, another another wonderful thing in September, mm-hmm. um, uh, after I was diagnosed with cancer, I decided to have some genetic testing done because I had a feeling once I heard about Marfan's, well, I, and I'm 6'1", so as soon as people saw me stand up, they just assumed I had Marfan's. And I was reading about the symptoms and signs, and it sounded like my dad's health history. And so... Um, when I did the genetic testing for cancer, I also had it done for aortic disease because I said, okay, I, let's just do it across the board while I'm here. And and I do have Marfan's. So, I, okay. I, like I said, I was pretty positive about that. Um, so that that it was <laughs> it was so funny. The next time, because everybody said, well, how how did this happen? You know, how how did this happen with your your aorta? You know, what what did you do wrong? Was everybody's big question? You know, 
and that was of course that's irritating enough when people just assume that you you've done something to cause whatever it is you know and um and so it was it was actually nice when the next person asked me and I actually I said okay I know I know what caused it now I actually have the ooh, 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 I have this answer I have this answer mm-hmm. you know I felt like my my big um welcome back Cotter moment ooh, 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 I know the answer <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was it was just it was neat to to actually have have a reply for somebody for a change you know right but um but it's it's interesting um and I, and I want to I want to get into a whole different something with since since I got you guys here with me, but for the listeners um, that may not know anything about aortic dissection, what is just some brief information we can tell them to give them some information that will help them know if this is something they should be checked out for. Beth, do you want to take this or do you want me to? Um, I will, I guess I can start and then you can add to it. Sounds good. Um, I'm going to say that uh, family history. Um, I was adopted, so I did not know any family history at my, when I dissected. Um, But family history is crucial in finding out anything, whether it's, and dissection, whether it's cancer. Um, so, you know, you're at Thanksgiving, sit down with your family and discuss what did great-grandma have? What did grandma have? What did grandpa have? Um, I think that was one of the things of why I was so interested in um, not only Aorta Cope, but with um, joining Think Aorta and getting out um, the message that would be key, which is family history. Family history comes first, and um, discuss it with your family. Uh, Get to know anything, especially during the pandemic. I mean, you had plenty of time to sit down with family and and find Mm -hmm. stuff out. And so I'm going to go with family history is probably number one key into um, determining what's wrong with you or what right, could that's be a, wrong with that's you. That's a super good point. So Think Aorta is a campaign that has been very successful in the U.K. and in Ireland. And it was started by a woman whose father was misdiagnosed. And so she wanted to make sure that people were not going to be misdiagnosed again, that receiving physicians and first responders understood the symptoms and signs of an aortic dissection because it's often called the silent killer. Because usually what happens beforehand would be an aneurysm and they're asymptomatic. So one of the things that's key here is that this can happen to anyone. One of the ways this happens is blunt force trauma, uh, getting, having the airbag go off when you're in a car accident, which is why they typically do a CT scan because they want to make sure your aorta wasn't damaged. Another time that this happens often can be during pregnancy because women might experience preeclampsia, which is extreme high blood pressure, and that much blood pressure can cause in spontaneous rupture, dissection, or aneurysm. But shy of those, 
if you have a, if you have a, if you find out that someone in your family has Marfan or Lowy Dietz syndrome, or vascular Ehlers Danlos, these are the most common ones that we've heard of. But there's a few new ones now called ACTA2 or Turner syndrome. You're going to know if somebody in your family has been diagnosed with this. That is definitely something that all of your immediate family members need to be checked for to determine if they have that mutation. If somebody in your family history died suddenly without warning and they decided to call it a heart attack, it may or may not have been a heart attack. It could have been an aortic dissection. If somebody in your family had a brain aneurysm, um, actually if somebody in your family has lupus, Crohn's disease, ankylosing spondylitis, any type of disease that causes inflammation, Inflammation causes an increase in heart rate, and that can cause aneurysms. All of those situations that Betsy's talking about when it comes to family history are key critical in determining if you should have a test. Now, the test does not need to be genetic testing because the reality is nobody's going to do genetic testing unless your parent or sibling or first relative has a genetic mutation. So, for instance, Nikki, if you have a child or you have a sibling, they could get tested and now they know where to look on that big, huge DNA strand to find out if that, if that person has Marfam. But if you are not able to determine if there's a genetic mutation and something like this happens in your family, the most important test to have, the easiest test to have is an echocardiogram. It is non-invasive. It takes probably about a half hour and it is going to check the most key critical area, which is the thoracic or top area of your chest, that area we were discussing before that mm-hmm. could lead to a higher mortality rate. The next test would be an MRA or a CTA, which now involves some dye and the CT involves radiation. But you would have to go to a cardiologist. They'll determine the best test. But really, anybody who's been involved in the situations that has to do with that family history are people that need to be checked. Exactly. Of course, if you have high blood pressure, if you're a smoker, if you have, and, and a lot of people don't even know that they have high blood pressure. So that, that's also what causes your aneurysms. And again, aneurysms don't really have any signs or symptoms. You're not going to know that you have an aneurysm. And the key is, if an aneurysm is found, well, that's such a blessing because now you're going to be followed. And in this community, it is extremely rare when someone knows they have an aneurysm to spontaneously have a dissection. It usually occurs if they're not taking their medicine, if they're not following weightlifting restrictions or straining and, and, and exercise restrictions. It doesn't just usually happen because it just happens. So if you find out you have an aneurysm, it can be scary, but now you're going to be monitored. The majority right. of us who have had aortic dissections, we didn't even know we had this ticking time bomb in our chest. Right. That's how mine was. Mm-hmm. It just about, they, you know, they found it once it, it already dissected. And I had an aneurysm, and I, I have all kinds of dissections and aneurysms, but yeah. Right. Well, you're a Marfan's patient, and I bet you you had discomfort with your dissection. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Betsy? <laughs> So why don't you tell, tell, tell her about your discomfort level? So I dissected at 42 and did not have any pain. Um, what? what I thought, yeah, no pain. Um, the pain that people discuss when they say, oh, it felt like someone stabbing my back with a knife, shredding it in my chest, I had none of that. Hmm. Um, what I had was probably an hour 
into what I thought was anxiety. Um, I stood up. I got lightheaded. I couldn't catch my breath. And I drove myself to the drugstore and took my blood pressure, which was fine, and then came back and still was lightheaded and dizzy and ended up calling my family physician who said, we think you're having a stroke or a heart attack. Get to the ER. I was at work, and I was like, you know, okay, you're crazy. There's nothing (laughs) wrong with me. It's anxiety. I'll be good. I'll just sit outside for a little bit at work, and I'll be fine. Well, a coworker convinced me to go, um, put me in their car, dropped me off. I walked in, and six hours later, after multiple tests, I had a little bit of jaw pain, probably the tip of my finger, um, and my right arm started going numb. That was hours into it. And they finally said, we're going um, to do some more blood work. They did my D-dimer, which came back extremely high. Um, my family physician then said, get her to CT stat. What I didn't know is they never finished the CT, um, but I was dissecting as they were doing the CT, and they called Life Flight, and I was told um, to say goodbye to my family right then and there. We're going to do everything in your power to get you to, um, in my case, I was at um, my local hospital but was sent to the Cleveland Clinic. Um, We're going to do everything to get you to surgery, but realistically, based on the time, we don't think you're going to get there. Wow. Yeah. But as for pain, I didn't have anything. So then I'm a little leery now knowing that I have another aneurysm and I'm being watched, that's 5.2, I always think in the back of my mind, okay, I didn't have any pain the first time. Am I going to have pain potentially the second time? Or, Yeah, I didn't didn't have any pain with aneurysm at all because I I had another one. They discovered it November of, what, 2018. Well, what, okay, they operated on it last, not this past summer, but summer before that, they found it in November, and they're like, it's so small, no problem at all, we'll see you in a year. And I said, yeah, I don't feel good about that. I want to come back in six months. And she says, okay, well, if that'll make you feel better, come back in six months. But, you know, it's it's just tiny. And I said, well, six months. And so I came back that June, and they said, okay, we need to schedule surgery. I went, do what? And I was, for what? And she says, for that aneurysm that we found in November, I said, that one that was so tiny, you weren't concerned? And she says, yeah. <laughs> and I said, all right, so what happened? She says, we, we have no idea, but it's, it's, it's big enough we need to operate. Turns out it was, it was like 5.8. And I'm That's like, big. okay, all right, uh-huh. And I said, well, when are you thinking? She says, well, are you busy later this week? I went, later this week? <laughs> And um, they ended up having to um, postpone it for a couple things. But, yeah, it, it had grown that much in six months. I said, well, I'm glad we didn't wait for a year. But, yeah. Now, I had a whole lot of trouble breathing because of where it was. It was actually right on top of my heart and just under the graft they'd done with wow. the first surgery. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't have been a worse place. But I didn't, I didn't have any pain at all, but a whole lot of trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. 
but I also had a um, hard valve that had been leaking ever since the the original dissection, and that had to be replaced. So they just they did all that and replaced the arch while they were in there. But um, yeah, I I didn't have anything. Well, and and. I, Aside from the original dissection, I, I pretty much explained it. I, I felt like somebody was shoving a machete in my chest, and they just kept turning it. Mm. But, I mean, that was the only real pain. I never had any any chest pain whatsoever. So I didn't really have chest pain either. I had a pop in my neck. So, But having Crohn's disease, which is irritable bowel disease, I just thought it was really bad gas. I mean, I did have chicken teriyaki for lunch, and so that was probably on the no-no list. So I was watching Ellen DeGeneres, and I just felt this big pop and stood up and let out a nice, healthy burp, and then it, the pain was got bad on the neck, but nothing anywhere else. And then the only reason I thought to call an ambulance was because when I sat down, I couldn't feel my arms or legs. They just went, comp- I mean, and it's numb, like nerve block numb when that sensation goes away. And then it came back, and I remember calling them and telling them I have really bad gas, and it escaped my intestines and it's pushing on my spine. I-, I probably didn't make any sense, but that made perfect sense to me. And I walked into the ambulance and went into the hospital, and they, just like most patients, my blood pressure was relatively normal, and my EKG was normal, but they ordered a CAT scan right away, and... That was not normal, <laughs> and I had only dissected at the arch. Hmm. I, I, it was during surgery that I then dissected all the way into my left iliac while he was working on me. So a little precarious. I think he was scared I was going to just blow out while my chest was open, but, but it didn't. And everything, see, for me, everything was fine, simple. Five hours later, I woke up. I came home five days later, no step-down unit. My hmm. problems all came afterwards. I had a series of uh, brain bleeds in 2016 and had a frozen shoulder and then I had some other issues with with my Crohn's and I ended up getting an ostomy and so it's just been one thing after another since then and you know of course like anybody that has anything wrong with them you you have to relearn your body so every ping and every pang freaks you out I have a frozen shoulder now Oh, yeah, I'll tell you, the manipulation under anesthesia, the MUA, is the best decision I ever made for that because frozen shoulders hurt really bad. (laughs) bad. Oh, my gosh. Last summer, okay, last summer I was in, I had three surgeries in like less than 36 hours, actually almost less than 24 hours. And when I woke up from, I, I was in a coma for five days after all that, and they they asked me about my pain level and and I had no chest pain whatsoever from from the open heart surgery but my shoulder was hurting and my shoulders hurt for like the last year right and every time I've been to the doctor through through the cancer treatment and everything the the pain I had was my shoulder and I kept telling them this but then it moved from my shoulder also down into my upper arm which actually has mm-hmm. tortuous veins because of the Marfans right and so and, and then once it moved into my upper arm and down into my, my arm and my wrist with, with typing all the time, that, that's a problem, right? And mm-hmm. I said, okay, now we're going to do something about this. And that's when they, they actually just found out a couple of weeks ago in, in that it's a frozen shoulder. And, and they gave me a cortisone shot for it, and I'm, I'm going to have to go to PT or whatever is what they're suggesting. Um, but, yeah, that, I mean, that's insane. And yeah. so they're, they're thinking that it – I mean, I think it was triggered with, with like, the – 
36 hours of surgeries. But right. Well, sometimes in the surgeries when they bring your arms out to the side, and I would think that this, well, it would be more prevalent with someone who had vascular Ehlers-Danlos, but when they whip your arm out like that to the side, um, yeah. it can cause brachial plexus issues, but typically it's can you know cause a frozen shoulder and that's just a lot of inflammation that builds up in that joint but once it's fully it's the freezing process people don't seem to understand that actually hurts the worst once it's fully frozen where you can't even move your wrist move your arm move anything that's when it tends to not be as painful because you just don't move it anymore so it doesn't really hurt but the the best thing i did was uh they knock you out and you're out for literally like five minutes. It's, they just put you in an, in an OR just to give you some Versed. You fall asleep. And then the doctor just moves your arm around. There's, there's no surgery. There's no cutting. They just take your arm and move it over your head, up and down like five or six times, side to side. And then they wake you up. But you're, you have a nerve block. Um, so when you wake up, you cannot feel anything. But you wake up and you immediately go to a PT center. And you start doing physical therapy. They, they move your arm around. Um, because what they've done is they've broken up all the scar tissue and the inflammation. And so you, the PT will move your arm, but you can't feel it. It's like you're, you're watching a mannequin arm because you feel nothing. You just watch it. And then 12 hours later, when the block wears off, you're supposed to start using like at-home um, pulleys, and you have to go to PT every single day, every single day for a couple weeks afterwards. And it's, it's painful, but it's not the same kind of pain. That, that horrible pain of frozen is gone. This just feels like, it feels like you had surgery. But I full complete range of motion back again. I can put my arm behind my back. I can put it fully over my head. It took a year, but having that manipulation was, oh, it, it, it set the stage in motion. I suffered for a year before that, waiting for yeah. it to freeze. It was wow. hard. Yeah, huh. but it's well, you're, you're, but you're, there's no surgery. They knock you yeah. out, and that's it. They move your arm, and then you start PT for a few weeks, and then you just have to make sure to you know. I I, I would hold an umbrella over my head, uh, like I would hold, I would lay on my back, and then just move it up and down over my head, like, and and just keep. I always I do it all the time. Actually, I don't ever want it to freeze again. That was mm. terrible. But yeah, you, yeah. and people will say, but you've been through worse. You had your chest cracked open. Nope. Some things just hurt worse than your chest being cracked open. It really does. I mean, I, cause I, I mean I'm, I'm used to tolerating a lot of pain. And I, I tell people, I said, I don't know why, but this, this is bad. This yeah. is just bad. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you too, but don't you feel like when you – I went to bed before this all happened, and I, I was a well-oiled machine – Oh, <laughs> dancing, doing all kinds of things, and then you wake up from surgery. And I'm like, holy hell! Like, I, I felt like a Mack truck hit me, and I and I've just aged terribly. Even over the last five years, I'll I'll get up out of bed and I'll think, how did I spontaneously break every bone in my body while I was asleep <laughs> on the bed? So, just something just feels horrible. It's just terrible. It's just and, and I'm the, like the, the Tin Man. The coincidence of that last the in last what was it 2019 when i woke up from that surgery i don't know what they put on my arm but you know how you wake up and like you're bruised from head to toe yeah yeah, yeah yeah okay well last last summer when i woke up i looked at my right arm when i woke up and whatever they put on my arm looked like like the tire tracks from like a four-wheel drive it was i'm like okay. okay well okay now i was run over by a truck because <laughs> i've got a truck Okay. All right. right. Now we talked about all the serious stuff. Let's get down to the, the yeah, dirty right. nitty gritty. 
Invisible disabilities are something that I really want us to talk about and help the audience to, to understand. Um, and I, I, I think we've now built up the credibility that we do know something about them. Because most people, if they were to meet us on the street most days, no, not when we're having a bad day, but <laughs> when we're having a normal day, they would probably not realize that we have all this stuff going on that we're trying to deal with. I think that goes with most human beings in the world, honestly, now that I'm of this age and have gone through this. And having Crohn's disease, which before I had my ostomy, nobody knew that I had Crohn's disease, but I had gotten a handicap tag, not plate, but the, the, the lanyard tag, um, because around Christmas time, it, the parking gets so overwhelming, I'd always have to park far away. Well, sometimes by the time I'd make it to the Target entry, oh, oh my gosh, I would have to go right to the bathroom. I'd almost have an accident. So I started getting, I would just start to park closer. And I realized it was, that was one of the first times I realized people would give me the nastiest looks because I get out of the car and my hair is done, my makeup's on, and, and they would just look at me and think that I was using like my grandmother's tag or something like that and not realize that I, I legitimately need it. And even more so after the dissection, because most of us are on so much medication that we're half asleep, um, we're exhausted, we're winded. It, we may have aneurysms that are, you know, reducing the strength of our aortic valve, which that's also what causes being winded. And we need to, we just need to park closer. Um, or we, you know, I can't necessarily stand for a long time and wait in line to use the bathroom. I feel like I'm going to pass out. I need to go in, in front of others. So whatever the case is for anybody, you just have to realize that so many disabilities, they're on the inside. This includes mental health, and you just don't see it, and it doesn't mean it's not real. Well, you know, I, I just avoid certain stores because the parking lots are just more mm -hmm. than I can handle. You know, or I, I, like my favorite grocery store, their parking lot is just not friendly. It's just not friendly for me. Now, there's one closer to me that their parking lot is much more friendly. I don't like the store as much, but it's easier for me to maneuver, so I usually go there instead. There, there are certain places I just do not go because I don't want to have to maneuver the parking lot. I just, you know, I'm not going to do it. But you know the the biggest the biggest thing it was the first time after surgery avoided it and avoided it and I finally said screw it I'm gonna do it was the this disabled stall in the bathroom and I'm like because I felt bad because people people look at you like no 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 can't use it no no can't do it and I'm like you know what I gotta go I can't maneuver that one I'm going anyway. And, and people do. They look at you mean when you come back out again or when you go in. And it's like, uh-uh. Nope, nope. Not going to worry about it. <laughs> you know? Let me tell you, once you have an ostomy, you realize that you do not care. I do not care. It is in their best interest that they let me go as far away as possible. There well, you go. As for the furthest off. But it, really, the reality is you. I used to really take notice. I used to really care and I I don't know if it's a combination of being thrust into menopause or having survived this or just my age that I just don't care anymore yeah. about other people's 
feelings about what I'm doing. I'm, I am on a complete mission to do what I think I need to do that's in my best interest, and I don't really need to explain it to anybody, but I have not always been this person. Um, I really, it took a lot of soul searching, but I think for anybody that is, their heart's and lungs are turned off, and the only reason that they are on is because of a machine, it changes something in you when you, you know that you were really facing death at that minute. And it yes. just makes you realize that it's, it's too short to really care about you know, someone giving you a, a snarl that you, you go into a handicapped bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is. It's like I, I think when you fought so hard and you know that you almost died, and you know how hard you fought to come back, it's like, I'm going to do what I have to do, and other people can deal with it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's I, like people that, that have an issue. And, and I've, I mean, I've had people literally walk up to me and complain because I have on a shirt that they can see my scar on my chest, which is, is almost not even visible anymore. And, and they'll complain that I should cover that up because it offends them. And I'm like, what? well, then. Someone yeah. has actually said that to you? Yeah, and I'm like, well, then turn your head. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Oh my, oh yeah, oh yeah. The first person that said that, I felt bad, and I'm like, no, uh-uh, turn your head. I'm like, I, I earned this. I earned this, and you have no idea what I did to earn this scar on my chest and what I went through to survive this. You turn your damn head. Uh-uh. Wow, that's crazy. I, I, I couldn't care less. If me having a scar on my chest offends you, mm-hmm. don't think it. I absolutely do not care. And, and somebody behind me clapped. <laughs> Good. Good for you. That's great. No. I'm going to say that for me, it's taken close to 10 years <laughs> um, where I finally have become a different person where I'm finally taking back control of my life. And it's about me. Yeah. I'm taking me time. Time that I didn't get right after surgery. Um, my husband is a double stroke and heart attack victim um, a couple years after my uh, dissection. Um, second stroke took his left side. Um, he has limited use of his left leg, but no use of his left arm, and 100% dependent on me doing everything. Mm. And I've, I finally have said, you know what? No. It's for my own sanity. Um, I was just recently diagnosed with uh, mild MS. And when I had three doctors at the Cleveland Clinic look at me and say, if you want to be around to, in the future to take care of people, then you need to take care of yourself. That's right. And I was like, wow. And so that put me into where I, you know, because exercise is not necessarily convenient for us, where I kind of do some yoga stretches that are mild, um, watching what I'm eating, um, but just taking every day, taking some time for me. Right. And doing what I want to do for myself. And as hard as that is to say no to someone, for me, it's been a, a game changer in my life. You but what well. I hate the most is I have to say, is, and I'm sure you guys have had it too, someone says, well, you don't look sick or yes. you look good for being sick. 
what is a sick person supposed to look like to you? <laughs> that's a great. Exactly. That's what I want to say. What do you want to say? What am I supposed to look like? Right. Mm-hmm. That's like I, I. I love, and I think I mentioned this to you the other night when we were first talking. I love the spoon theory. I I, I found mm-hmm. that I, I learned that from um, Faith when when I interviewed her about um, unfuck your brain. I love that book. If you haven't read it, you've got to get that book and read it. But we were we were talking about that. I, I I did two interviews with her. One about just regular, you know, how your how your brain works normally, and I did one about how it impacts you when you're when you're sick and you're you're dealing with with long term health issues and all that. And and when she was telling me that, I'm like, I love that. I absolutely love that, especially when you're dealing with an illness. And and I. I I applied that with every single person when I was going through chemo and radiation and all that. And I'm like, I'm not putting makeup on. If that bothers you, here again, turn your head. <laughs> I'm just not worried about it. Right. You know, not dealing with it. And, you know, got to wear a mask. Don't need makeup. You can't see my face anyway. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. You know, you, well, and, and, you know, taking time for yourself, that's good for the rest of them. You know, they can, they can make them appreciate you more when you are there. Absolutely. But, yes, I agree. Wow. But for the listeners, just to, let, me, let me give you the, the official, one of the official definitions for invis, invisible disability. It says, people often ask us to define invisible disability. In simple terms, an invisible disability is a physical, mental, or neuro, neurological condition that is not visible from the outside, yet can limit or challenge a person's movements, senses, or activities. Unfortunately, the very fact that these symptoms are invisible can lead to misunderstandings, false perceptions, and judgments. And it's interesting, I found a statistic that says about 10% of Americans have a medical condition which could be considered an invisible disability, and 96% of people with chronic medical conditions live with a condition that is invisible. That that kind of floored me. 96% of people that have a chronic condition, medical condition, live with a condition that is invisible. That's that's hard to imagine. Well, I guess that would make sense because if you really want to think about what's visible, you're looking at exterior skin. You're looking at yeah. maybe some weird growth, uh, a missing limb. That's pretty visible. But mm-hmm. even that, you know, I don't know how many people in the community, but it's not that it's a secret. So you know um, Greg on our board, and he's part of Aorticope, is missing half of both of his feet. Okay. And that was because of his dissection. And I just found another person in the community, and he's missing half of both of his feet. So this is clearly now you have one, it's isolated. Two, you're getting into a little bit of a pattern. Three, it's more like a trend. I know there's others out there that this happens to, mm. and nobody would know, um, you know, looking at that it's that, that extensive. Um, yeah. Fasciotomy is pretty easy to see, not necessarily a disability. But I think people, I mean, I'm just, you got me thinking, because I'm just looking at the people in my family, somebody, you know, if if you have a family member that has, let's say, a blood cancer, you're not going to see that. Somebody else Mm -hmm. has had a prostate cancer, you're not going to see that. These are not necessarily disability, you know, um, situations, but I think that's part of the problem 
in this country with being able to apply for disability is we are put mm-hmm. in a position to prove that we are no longer able to perform the job that we once had, let alone any job in the entire planet, like counting potato chips for Lay's or pushing a pencil. And some of these mm-hmm. are real jobs. I'm not even making it up. So... And that's because you go in front of a judge and they're looking at you. Everybody looks at people. We're judgmental, but not necessarily that we want to be. It's just part of, I think, nature and makeup. We size people up. We look. And you line up people in a room, and you're right. Nobody would be able to pick out the person that has a disability if it's not an obvious thing that we can physically see. It's true. So that means everybody else needs to just be a little bit kinder and sweeter to everybody because, you know what, even if someone doesn't have a disability, you never know what's going on in that person's life, which is now that I'm older, I've adopted it if you receive a little bit less than stellar service from a waitress or a waiter or a, a retail clerk, anybody. You don't know if they just got news that their parent's dying. You don't know if they just got a divorce packet from their spouse. You, you have no idea if they didn't just get rammed into by somebody in the car, you know, on their way into work. You don't know if they just found out they're being furloughed. So anything can happen, and it, it's almost 100% chance that their attitude has absolutely nothing to do with you. So you just have to be extra sweet because you never know what someone else is going through. Well, and, and you know, that was like somebody posted on Facebook today and said, what, what are you doing to be healthier in your life? And I, you know, just be, being me, I, I commented on there and, and just, you know, and, and being this week, you know, I commented and said something about, um, how you know because people were making flip responses to it you know and mm-hmm. and that just kind of hit me wrong <laughs> yeah you know, if it was next week it probably wouldn't have <laughs> but being this week it did because you know it's you know it, it's it's this week and everything's kind of hitting me a little bit different kind of was giving a little abbreviated version of my story and and saying you know you you never know and your entire life can flip upside down in you know in five minutes so you know instead of being flip about it you know appreciate your life if you're healthy right now because I mean I mean when when my dissection happened I I left I was working I left the room I went and fixed some dinner I came back in I sat down to have dinner and as I was sitting down that's when my dissection happened five minutes earlier I was fine no indication in the next five, ten minutes, my whole world was going to flip upside down and I wasn't going to be able to breathe, you know. Right. And, and when I went into the hospital, one of the things they asked my husband, first they asked me numerous times if I did cocaine. Because a lot of times people who do cocaine end up with dissections. Because they couldn't understand. I'm a 45-year-old woman who just did a 10K uh, six weeks before and had been training for it because I do not run. I barely will run if someone yells fire. I might walk briskly. So uh, there was no running, but I did train for it. And then they asked my husband if everything was okay at home because they weren't going to search my chest to see if I had been in a, in a physical, physically abusive relationship because they – Again, that goes back to the blunt trauma, the blunt force trauma. And, of course, that's not occurring. And they just could not figure out how I would have experienced such a potentially devastating event. And, yes, people want to say, well, were you eating healthy? Were you doing this? Were you doing that? And, you know, yes, drinking monster drinks and some of the the, the, uh, energy drinks, Red Bull, very bad for you. But it all goes back to 
yes, there are going to be people out there that um, are going to contribute to what may have already happened anyway. So they're not treating their high blood pressure by drinking an energy drink because it's just going to cause the heart to work harder, which can cause an aneurysm. And people, that's why your listeners need to realize this is not something that we eat our way to, we drink our way to, we are lazy and don't exercise. You have to look at the aorta, which nobody pays attention to unless something happens. It is the garden hose. It is the highway of your super highway of your life because off of this one huge artery, which is about the diameter of your entire thumb. So it's pretty big. It's a pretty big round circle. Feeds your entire body from there. So the blood comes out of the heart and goes down and branches off to give blood to every organ in your entire body, to everything, fingers, toes, liver, spleen, everything. Gets it from this one tube. Well, if it's coming out of the heart, and you have an increase in heart rate or blood pressure, you're using, it's like turning on a water hose to full pressure over and over and over again. Eventually, you're going to get a weakened area in your garden hose. That's the same thing as the aorta. And that's called an aneurysm, is a weakened area. And those can blow out and create a hole, and then, you know, your water in your garden hose is pouring out, or a layer can tear tear away on the inside, and the water's not going to go to the exit. It's getting trapped, and so you're not getting as much blood flow to organs, and that's the, that, that becomes problematic. So this is not something that we do to ourselves, though there are a small population of people that probably, there's a chance if they didn't do A, B, or C that this wouldn't happen. But exactly. there are plenty of people out there that run marathons, that are triathletes, that ate perfectly good food, never smoked, never drank, never anything, and split their body in half. It just happens. But this is a great month to have this conversation. Not only is it your aortiversary, but it is what, so what started off on September 19th as being Aortic Dissection Awareness Day, when we kind of came really into, into our own as being a nonprofit, we challenged that with a couple of people that came before us. If you remember Robert Epps and some other people, we, we were communicating with them and we were saying, well, the aorta can have issues from any of these situations from the beginning to the end thoracic and, and descending, so why are, why, and it could be aneurysms, and aneurysms can lead to dissections, and dissections can lead to additional aneurysms because once something happens to your aorta, it's forever compromised. Even if you have an aneurysm and its surgery happens and it's taken out, that is a very good situation to be in, um, especially if you have like bicuspid valve and these other things. You're not necessarily at risk to see other events happen, but it is still a somewhat compromised aorta. So we challenged it and we said, well, why isn't it Aortic Disease Awareness Day? And we just decided we were going to change the name. And then we realized that there's just way too much information. So Aortic Hope has decided to call it Aortic Disease Awareness Month. And so this is a great month that you're doing this conversation with us because we're in the middle I, of the month. See there, I, I saw that when you sent me that. that uh-huh. I said, perfect timing, perfect, perfect timing. timing. It's great. And I like that. Very good. So what are there are there any misconceptions that we can think about that people may have about people with I like challenges better than disabilities personally because mm-hmm. they are they are challenges and and I think disability I think that in itself causes misconceptions because people just I I, I think people just 
when people think disabilities, they, they tend to, people tend to speak louder because they just assume you can't hear, or they tend to look at the person with you and talk to them instead of you, or just figure that, that you can't do anything for yourself, you know? And I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I, I live on my own and take care of most of my stuff for myself. I have a wonderful 17-year-old neighbor that, that does stuff for me around the house, you know, that, that I just, I probably manage it. It would take me probably 15 times longer than it takes him. So I really, really, really appreciate that he he does it for me. And I have a boyfriend that takes care of some other things for me that I just cannot get done. But, you know, for for most everyday things, I can get them done. But I know a lot of people just assume that if you have some sort of a disability or challenge, that that means there's a whole lot of things that you're unable to do. And and for a lot of people, that's not true. I think it's just wrong to just think that if a person has some sort of a disability or challenge, to just assume they can't do things. What do you guys think? I have to agree. Um, I think when you say someone is disabled, I think most people think of, or at least I know in the back of my mind when, you know, I was going through the disability process and whatnot, is the person in the wheelchair. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not in a wheelchair, (laughs) but I have other issues. I have pump head. Sometimes I find my keys in the refrigerator (laughs) and wonder how they got there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just little things that I think that as a survivor of a dissection and being disabled um, or challenged, um, I think that's what I always thought, like, yeah, you're disabled. And I think I've even said that a couple times years ago, like you'd see someone pull in the handicap spot and you'd be like, really? They're walking. Well, it wasn't until I dissected that it was like, well, here I am. I've got the placard, you know. A lot of times I try not to park there because I feel like, okay, I can walk in there. It might take me a little bit longer, but someone else might be in a wheelchair or someone else might have more problems than me, and I'd rather have them have the spot. Yeah. Um, well, sometimes so, I, feel, I feel, does somebody need it more than I do? Yeah, you know? that's how I feel. Yeah, because I, I had a placard for about six months while I was going through chemo and everything, and I and I didn't use it very often at all for that very reason. But, yeah, so I, I completely get that. Well, and I think that we are not necessarily disabled as just able-challenged, maybe, because there, there really go. isn't much that we can't do. We just have to do everything differently. So technically... Yeah. Can I, is it that I can't do laundry? No, I can do it. But I'll tell you, leaning over into the washing machine to then transfer stuff to the, to the dryer, it depends on the day and how my medications are absorbed. Sometimes I could pass out and I end up on the floor. So um, everything gets starry and black. But then the other days, oh, just lean right over. I forget that anything's ever wrong with me and I just do the laundry. So I think it's, we're, we're ably challenged. Like I... I don't technically have a garlic allergy. I have an intolerance. So people just need to figure out how they want to use their words and what, and what works best for them. And yeah. even though we are labeled disabled for the purposes of Social Security disability, 
because otherwise I don't know many people that call themselves readily, call themselves disabled. I think that, um, and I think that takes time to get to a place of accepting that you have something that is, that is technically uh, written as a disability. And right. aortic dissection is, um, I forget the code, but it takes time. Everybody hits that point at different moments in their life, if they do at all. Some people come out of this like almost unscathed other than surgery, and they go on and go back to work, and they live their life, and they don't notice or feel a different, and that's awesome. We try to, at Aortic Hope, uh, kind of use the same, I think, I think it was, uh, I think somebody else has said this before. We just kind of twisted it around a little bit. We believe in... Um, thriving not just surviving so don't nice. just don't just survive strive to thrive that's what we typically say don't just survive nice. strive to thrive yeah so you know any and every day can be different so and this goes for anybody you know sometimes we as women especially can get hard on ourselves because we don't get everything done that's on our mental to-do list and we have to realize as people in general that doing nothing is doing something just like right. making no decision is a decision in itself. So if you have to take a day where you do nothing, that is what your body clearly needed, and it's okay. That was doing something. And for people that are recovering from surgery or what have you, we often say if all you can do is walk to the post box in front of your house, that's an accomplishment. It may have been two steps further than the day before. And so everybody's in, – in that way, you also have to, you have to um, kind of view – disability on that kind of in that terminology as well like as far as um, measuring it because right. again for all of us you might be able to do things I can't do and vice versa so how can uh, people find more information about aortic hope and more details if they are curious obviously we're, we're found on Facebook just under aortic hope and we also have an Instagram of the same name. We also have a YouTube channel, and our website is aortichope.org. So you can always send us an email, aortichope at gmail, if you have any questions or information. And we have people that are with us called Hope Ambassadors that are always on the ready, that we can match up to talk with anybody who is either a caregiver, a family member, or experiencing this themselves, and we can pair you up to have some one-on-one -on -one conversations. And we have numerous events. You can join other support group meetings, we have them the fourth Thursday of every month, and there's, just, there's always something going on with us. So all of that would be on Facebook or on our website. And I've got a website that is aorticdissectionawareness.com that has a wide variety of information. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for being with me, ladies. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes. And, of course, there will be a link to the show on that website also. <laughs> so, Wonderful. And if you go to my website to readyforloveradio.com slash invisible disabilities, you will find a replay of today's show. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you. And Thank listeners, you. I'll be back with you next week on Ready for Love Radio. The rain is falling, but I won't let it in There could be storm clouds looming, but I'll shine within Cause every day there's something beautiful that shines through the rain There is something
beautiful day And I won't give in to my fears Watch them fade away While I get over my tears It's a, a beautiful day And I won't